Uh, this evening we will be in Proverbs 21.1. And as we enter the season of Advent, I want to focus on possibly one of the most overlooked aspects of Christ's birth. One aspect that I think is most appropriate for the times that we're living in, but and also most comforting. And that's God's sovereign care over His people through the power structures around us. And that sounds kind of abstract and grand, but I hope to show how immensely encouraging, and, but yet personal, that this truth is. Because we live in tumultuous times, don't we? To our shame, it's a time that's filled with fake news, political propaganda, and endless deception. And those things give birth to political disarray, public unease, and just general skepticism about the world around us. This year has been one of the most divisive years in our country, and the church is not immune. It's a wonder that we can trust anyone or anything, and at the very least, we're sympathetic towards those who choose not to. We understand their skepticism because we ultimately depend on someone else to tell us what's happening in the world because we're limited human beings. We can't be everywhere, know everything, and see everything. We can't be God. And it does seem that over the years, the mingling of special interests and politics and journalism has become so intimate that, again, at the very least... Our suspicions are aroused to the trustworthiness of the news that we read and the leaders that are over us. Now, the skepticism, though may be reasonable, can put us in a very dangerous position. Because I think for most of us, it ultimately erodes our false sense of security and reveals our immense desire for control. We believe that our safety and therefore our happiness depends on our ability to control the world around us, even if that means knowing what to expect from the leaders or those in positions of power. Think about the world. What's our response? What's your response? Because fear tells us that we can't trust anyone or anything It devises conspiracies about the power structures that are around us and would have us live in constant unease, fearing the unexpected. Despair tells us that these leaders and systems are too complex. They're too powerful to overcome. We should be hopeless and live in dread of the inedible. And anger tells us that we must rebel. That they must be punished. That We should never surrender and constantly fight to expose the truth. And what all those things are telling us is that our destiny is ultimately in our hands. Christians, we need to find a better way. We need to find a better way. And the difficult thing is that the Bible actually agrees with this perception of the power structures around us. Which is to say that the world around us is filled with systems and people that are sinful. If this is the world we live in and only those things are true, then we should be fearful, we should be hopeless, and we should be angry. There's a time to question God's sovereignty 
over the nations, and thus his care for the people, it's now. So in our time together, I want to look at two passages. The first is Proverbs 21.1, that's where we're at right now, and then the second is Luke 2.1. That sounds strange, but I, I want to put out there for you that Proverbs 21 is the promise, is the proposition, the argument, and then Luke 2.1 is evidence of that promise. Plus, it's Christmas. We have to talk about Luke 2, right? Okay, so Proverbs 21. 21.1. Very short verse. I want us to sit on this for a while. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Let's pray over God's word. Father, I'm thankful for tonight. Thankful for... Uh, these people who who really are the the backbone of our church, and uh, we never enjoy missing people, but we understand that certainly during holidays and, and sickness, and just thankful for the people that can be here. And as I look around this room, I know that these people are faithfully serving in our church and, and are very much uh, part of our core. And so, just thankful that they're here, excited to hear from the Word of God. And uh, we exist to do that, not just simply to amass numbers. And we don't have to meet a certain quota. We're here to gather around your word, Lord. And I pray that you use a weak instrument like me to magnify your greatness, your glory. And I pray that this word can stand alone and comfort our anxious souls. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Proverbs 21.1. I want to focus on three parts of this passage that I'll break apart in units that I think, in looking at this passage, help to meditate and understand it a little bit better. And those three parts, I'll look at it in this order, are streams of water, the king's heart, and the hand of the Lord. So let's look at stream of water. So this phrase is generally a considerable amount of water. Now, we live in Kentucky in West Virginia, Appalachian area, when we think streams, we think those little things, you know, little brooks and stuff like that. But this is generally on the, on the river. It can mean anything up to like a river. And it's usually on the river side of things. But this phrase is also a phrase that is generally conveyed as a phrase of blessing in life. So, for instance, the psalmist says that those who meditate on the law of the Lord will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Or consider Isaiah 44.3, where it pairs blessing and water together. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So the initial idea that the king's heart is like a stream of water is indicating his blessing and favor. And this idea of kingly blessing and favor is consistent with the rest of the book of Proverbs. So consider Proverbs 16.15. In the light of a king's face there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. Or Proverbs 19.12. A king's wrath is like the growling of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. Those in power are supposed to be like streams of water to the people they serve. And a brief survey of Proverbs outlines that kings should reign by wisdom, Establish their throne by righteousness and steadfast love. That's the model. So the imagery initially is intended to be encouraging. But I think it's more fitting than we actually realize. 
And whenever I see a comforting passage, and I would suggest uh, you do the same, whenever I see a comforting or encouraging word in the scriptures, I like to think about uh, what it's trying to address. Or to say it another way, I, I like to ask the question, why does this need to be said? What is it trying to comfort? In answering that question, I want to think about the imagery of hearts being like streams of water, and then think about how that applies to kings or those in power. The text implies that our hearts, the center of all our decisions, can be like a stream of water. The author is describing human nature, and the imagery is really fitting, since a stream can seem unpredictable. It can change in direction depending on the environment around it. It can change in depth or in content and therefore usefulness. It can even run out and become dry. Streams also don't exist by themselves. They're created by sources of water that then funnel into other sources of water. They're dependent, always changing, temporal. This is a great description of our heart. And the history of humanity has been concerned with the manipulation and control of streams of water, literal and metaphorical. Which is to say, our lives are dependent on the blessing and favor of others. Whether those blessings are active or passive, what do I mean by that? So, sometimes we're dependent on specific acts of blessing from others. And that could be a cup of sugar, a loaf of bread, or it can be a substantial loan or a place to stay. But at other times, that blessing is more passive, as in the general peace that exists among people, or the fact that everyone that you ran into today wasn't trying to beat your head in and take all your stuff, okay? And that's part of a bigger passive blessing called government that has laws and consequences for breaking those laws. We depend on the blessing and favor of others. And our days, then, are filled with thoughts, Plans, conversations, real or imaginary, and all the subtleties that go into controlling and manipulating the blessing of others. Now, if the author is only making this observation of the human heart, that hearts are like streams of water that can bless or withhold blessing, then we don't have any real reason for encouragement. It only reinforces what we already know and practice it. So our days then should be filled and continue to be defined by the appeasement of these streams. Toiling to keep them filled. Constantly hedging their way, keeping them clean, etc. But note the inclusion of the word king. The king's heart. So in this scene, people aren't concerned whether their child's heart is like a stream of water, which can be a comfort for parenting. They're not concerned whether their spouse's heart is like a stream of water, which can be a comfort for marriage, or even their neighbors, which can be a comfort for many things, like business and safety and friendships. Think about the time that they're living in. There's one man in all the nation whose word is final and power unrestrained. If he wanted to, he could walk into your home and take everything you had. He could commit unspeakable crimes against your family and take your children as slaves. Now that's dark and extreme, but just read the Old Testament. 
Just read a history book. So it's not just anyone's heart. It's the king's heart that this passage is concerned with. The proverb doesn't simply exist to make an observation on the human heart or about human behavior. It's born out of the fear of an imbalance of power. And the king represents for us the height of that imbalance. And we really have no context for this in our modern Western world. We can only equivalent to things like big government or secret societies of wealth. But this isn't so foreign to the rest of the world. But this is what the proverb addresses. And if the heart of the king is only like a stream of water, wild and unrestrained, showing favor with partiality and charity at whim, we have good reason to fear. Will the streams of kings bless us with life when we're thirsty? Or will it abandon us to starve? Will they deceive us with poisonous water or be a fountain of truth and reason? Will they sweep us away with floods of wrath or drown us in the blindness of ambition? We live in the reality of the fear and dependence on kings or those in power. And I said that kings represent the height of this imbalance of power, but these relationships exist all over the place. And I don't know about you, but I'm a pretty powerless person. And we're a pretty powerless people. Which means there are countless relationships that exist in our lives where people have an opportunity to take advantage of us. These relationships are in our home. The imbalance of power between husbands and wives, parents and children, older siblings with younger siblings. They exist in our workplace. The imbalance of power between managers and employees, owners and staff, seniority, non-seniority, experience, non-experience. They exist in our churches. The imbalance of power between the state and the church, leaders and followers, mature and immature, male, female, adults and children, and they exist in our society at large. Rich, poor, strong, weak, leaders, non-leaders, police, citizens, represented and unrepresented. And the world wants us to believe that we need to be shut off, that we need to be aggressive and strike first, that we need to always have the upper hand, that we need to be constantly on guard, vigilant, discerning, rebellious, cynical, fearless, and hopeless. And to do those things requires a lot of time, a lot of study, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of energy, and a lot of money. It requires nothing short of our entire lives in the worship of power, safety, and control. Christian, what hope do we have? Who's going to plead our calls before kings? Who's going to speak for the powerless? Do you see what the proverb is driving at? It's targeting this angst that we all have as we counter the reality that there are more powerful people in the world than ourselves. It targets this desire to throw everything we have to secure something we can't keep. It's trying to keep us from a life of madness and misery. And and the question might hit us, why shouldn't we engross our lives in this pursuit? Why shouldn't we give in to the madness? 
Because the king's heart is like a stream of water, yes. But it's in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he will. This imagery is intended to be comforting. This elusive kingly favor that the world tells us we must pursue is actually in the hands of the Lord. Praise be to God that kingly streams are in kingly hands. That the hearts of mortals are in the hands of the immortal, immutable God. If that wild kingly stream should wish to break over the banks, there it is met violently by the immovable rock. And as the foam of those waters subside, there on the rock of Christ are seen the many promises of God. And though that kingly stream be constant, it never prevails over the rock. Glimmering under the sun, soaked with the tears of those whom he loves and take refuge in him. But this alone will not do. Since the rock that is always shimmering with tears is also stained with blood. The kings of the nations have not been kind to the citizens of heaven. And what must we say except that the God who turns the king's heart to save is also the same God who turns the king's heart to destroy. Yet I want to consider that there is something worse than death and departure from this world. Perhaps several things. Primarily the second and eternal death for those who don't believe and worship God. Matthew 10.28 says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Hell. So for the saint, idolatry is worse than physical death. And secondly, not dying at all in our present condition would truly be merciless. Which is why we were removed from the garden in the first place. Genesis 3.22 says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he, rest, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live Forever, And as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We are in dire need for the redemption of of our bodies, that body and soul be uniformed in what can only be described as mysterious and at the same time euphoric. So what difference then does it make whether we are cleansed of this body through kingly streams or in the middle of the night? To God be the glory to use our death as he has used our life. And this is the larger story that the Lord is calling with great patience to the four corners of the earth for his sons and daughters, everyone called by his name, whom he created for his glory, whom he formed and made, Isaiah 43, 7. He will move the hearts of kings to do it. In protection and destruction, with infinite knowledge and mysterious providence that has marched the redeemed forward in leaps both in feast and famine. 
So we must conclude then that this divine administration of kings doesn't necessitate our immediate and constant physical well-being. It is guided by the hands of our loving Father who gives good gifts to His children, who wishes that none should perish but all come to everlasting life, who works all things to the salvific good of His people, who will not see His holiness profane, who will glorify His name in all the earth, and who hedges in kings so that His will is never thwarted. This God of absolute power and love is worthy of our deepest trust. Christian, rest in it. Rest in it. So what's this have to do with the birth of Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's turn over to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, because after all, it is Advent. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. Now, I said that Proverbs 21.1 is the promise. That the Lord is sovereign over the hearts of kings. And this passage is the evidence. This is one of those passages that's kind of so familiar that our brain just goes into autopilot when we hear it. So, I'm sorry about that. But, I want you to think about the story like this. This is the story of how God moved the whole world for one tiny family. It's amazing. And as we close, I want to think about the how of the story. I want to think about the why of the story and just close with a couple of applications. So first, the how. Now, I say that God moved the whole world, but we know that's just Rome. But the Roman Empire is considered to be the center of the world. It's basically 15% of the world's population at the time, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's pretty incredible. It's where everything's happening. They're the strongest empire to have ever existed at this point in history. It spans most of Europe, parts of Asia and Africa, and bolsters somewhere between 45 to 60 million people. So this story is how God moved one man, Caesar Augustus, who then moved at least 45 million people so that two people would travel to Bethlehem so that one person could be born. That's the Christmas story. And the journey for Mary and Joseph was not short. It's about a 90-mile hike from Nazareth to Bethlehem that would have taken them somewhere between four to five days. They probably would have traveled with a caravan, since most people were traveling anyways, and they would have probably taken the easier of two routes, southeast through the Jezreel Valley, then through the Jordan Valley. This is the interesting stuff, right? And then down all the way to Jericho, and then it would have been an uphill hike from Jericho through the Judean Desert to Jerusalem, and then to Bethlehem. Now, I say uphill hike. The last leg of the journey would have been the most difficult. You have to understand that the Dead Sea Depression is literally the lowest point on earth. And Bethlehem and Jerusalem are situated on hills. So it's a 3,500 feet incline from Jericho to Bethlehem. The nights would have been cold. 
They would have been filled with fear since robbers would have especially taken advantage of such a time where many people were traveling. And all this, mind you, Mary is nine months pregnant. Now, I don't know if you've been around a woman who is nine months pregnant, but it is an absolute joy, let me tell you. <laughs> if Mary wasn't ready to have this baby before she left, she's, she's definitely ready now. In in all seriousness, this trip is less than ideal for her. This is the time she's supposed to be resting and nesting. And the trip is dangerous for her health and her baby's health. Nobody's signing up for the Luke 2 birthing plan. Let's just put it that way. When they find their way to Bethlehem, their lodging is also less than ideal. But it beats the road, and they're tired. It's the type of environment that the medical field would have a panic attack over. This is the how. The next question is the why. This is interesting to think about. The why of the story. And it's kind of a complicated question. The first and kind of most obvious reason is that the Messiah was prophesied to be born in Bethlehem. That comes from Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. But that still doesn't fully answer the question, since it doesn't tell us why God chose this particular path to move Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. Have you ever thought about that? God could have devised any number of ways to get the couple to travel to Bethlehem without bothering the rest of the world. They could have been visiting family. They could have been forced to go to Bethlehem by kind of a direct decree by the Lord. They could have been chased to Bethlehem. They could have just said, hey, Bethlehem's a great place to live. There's economic advantage. Let's go to Bethlehem. But in God's plan, 44,999,998 people's lives are interrupted so that two people can travel 90 miles in a week's time and give birth to a child in a manger of all places. Now, there may be many answers to the question of why, but I want to suggest two. First, this story echoes, in short, the larger story of history. In seemingly complete chaos, God moves his people along with ordinary means, through great trials and suffering. As they anxiously await a savior, agonizing, if you will, like a woman in the pains of childbirth, which not only fits with the story, but is how Paul describes we wait along with creation for new creation and the birth of Jesus is the foundation and inauguration of this new creation. But the second reason, I think, is more significant. When Caesar Augustus came into power, he refused monarchical titles like king and instead called himself princeps civitatis which is latin for first citizen and usually just the shorter princeps was used and that means has a range of meaning meaning first in time first in order foremost chief the most eminent distinguished noble first man or first person and if that sounds familiar it's because these are titles that the bible ascribes to Jesus. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Or Romans 8.29, 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Or in Hebrews 1.6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Sound familiar? Later on in our chapter, that's exactly what the angels are doing in verse 14. Or how about Psalm 89? 27, speaking of one of David's descendants who would sit on the throne, the promised Messiah, it says, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the day of heavens. Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Which, by the way, our word prince comes from the Latin word princeps, that Caesar Augustus calls himself. So then... God's moving of Caesar, the firstborn of Rome, and the upheaval of his entire empire is a grand-scale demonstration of God's ultimate sovereignty and kingship over the most powerful empire and ruler of the world. It's the effectual bending of the knee of Caesar and all his people to the birth of the true firstborn of Mary. This is the heavenly proclamation of the king of God's creation in the coming of his kingdom. So let's close with a couple applications. For those of us who would say, yeah, that's good and all, but uh, God's sovereignty is just too great. Or you might say something like, I know God cares about me, but he only shows up every now and then and mostly leaves me to fend for myself. The birth of Jesus is actually telling us that our view of God's sovereignty is too small. God intimately cares about the details of our lives, and he's willing to turn the world upside down to affect it. Whenever I would ask my mom to do something that she knew that I felt was important, she would always respond with this expression. She would say, Honey, I don't know if I can do it, but I'll try to move heaven and earth to do it for you. When we pray, we have a Father who can and has moved heaven and earth to answer our requests, no matter how small or insignificant we feel they might be. When we feel powerless, remember that all the power and resources of the kings of this earth are at his disposal, like streams of water in the hand of of the Lord that he turns wherever he will. Christian, you didn't know it this evening, but you're actually really well connected. If God can move the whole earth for one tiny family in Nazareth, he can move the whole earth for one tiny family in Louisville. It's pretty amazing. And I also can't help but think about the means of the story and the comfort that that brings in times of uncertainty like the ones that we live in. We have to admit that if, if we were planning the birth of the Savior of the world, it would not have looked like this. Probably not have looked like this. The empire is busy, it's chaotic, it's demanding and even cruel. 
The road to Bethlehem is long, it's cold, and it's hard for a very pregnant Mary. Bethlehem is loud and it's crowded. The manger is dirty and embarrassing. And all this story, everything about it is inconvenient. Luke 2 and 2020 have a lot in common, don't they? And yet in all of this, God is mightily at work. How can we be so certain that God isn't moving the whole world right now to affect your family and your faith? Christians, we need to be the ones with a level head in the madness of the empire. We need to be able to see through the barrage of headlines and guidelines to the hand of the Lord at work to teach us in new ways to behold Him, to trust Him alone, to love our neighbor, and to yearn for a better kingdom as He bends the knees of the kings of this earth with sickness of all things. And that's a gentle reminder that their reigns will be plagued with death and that we need a throne that will be established forever. We need to be like the shepherds who turn their eyes from the fields of their care to behold with haste the glory of their Savior, Christ the Lord. We need to be like the wise men whose energies and gifts were spent in seeking and worshiping the king of the Jews while they gave no such allegiance to Herod. Let it not be said of us that when God, when God was preparing the world for a Savior, we were griping about the census. Let it not be said of us that we couldn't be bothered from our fields and plans and things to behold God's glorious Son, the firstborn of all creation. And let it not be said of us that we spent more time in the courts of Herod than in the manger of Bethlehem. I want to finish with the last stanza of This is My Father's World. That hymn is so appropriate to the the message of Proverbs 21, and that's why we sing it. It says, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who dies shall be satisfied in earth and heaven be won. Let's pray.